Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Starter, Season 3 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. The Starter is also available as an ebook and as an ad free, unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash The Starter. An excerpt from The GFL for Dummies by Robert Otto. One game, 50 planets. How the GFL standardized the playing field. Following the 2682 season, the Empire Bureau of Species Interaction, the EBSI, approved the application of another eight Tier 3 teams, bringing the Tier 3 total to 288. Add in 76 Tier 2 teams and 22 T1 squads, and you have 386 professional franchises under GFL management. With five species playing for nearly 400 teams across 50 planets, how does the GFL guarantee a consistent playing experience and a uniform on-field product? The answer to that question is in the GFL rulebook under the heading Standards for Playing Fields and Stadiums. Just as the English language and the archaic imperial measurement system dominate football rules and culture, so, too, do the physical characteristics of the planet Earth dominate playing field specifics. For GFL measurement purposes, gravity is measured in units based on acceleration of 9.80665 meters per second, or the nominal acceleration at sea level on Earth. This constitutes 1 G. The other factors are temperature, air pressure, and atmospheric composition. Almost all GFL stadiums are self-contained, so that these parameters can be tightly controlled. Gravity Requirements Playing field gravity is measured by official GFL scales and is based on a 350-pound weight, which is close to the average weight of a GFL player. Referees travel with their own 350-pound units, which are weighed before each game to ensure consistency. The maximum weight is 1.06 standard gravity, where 350 pounds on Earth would be 371 pounds. The minimum weight is 0.94 standard gravity where 350 pounds on Earth would be 329 pounds. Temperature Due to the varying physiologies of the GFL species, temperature must be closely monitored. Most GFL stadiums are indoors, with artificial atmosphere management in addition to gravity modifiers. Earth has the most outdoor stadiums, but temperature conditions must be met for GFL play. The max temperature is 26 degrees Celsius, 78.8 degrees Fahrenheit. The minimum temperature is 14 degrees Celsius, 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Air pressure. This is strictly regulated due to potential effects on the dynamics of throwing the football. The league understands that an active passing game is often preferred by the majority of fans. Therefore, 
Rules are in place to make sure air pressure will not overtly affect the throwing game. The air pressure on Earth at sea level is 14.7 pounds per square inch, or psi. This amount of 14.7 psi is known by the measurement term of one atmosphere, or ATM. For GFL standards, standard air pressures must fall within the range listed below. Maximum pressure: 1.1 atmosphere. Minimum pressure: 0.83 atmospheres. Atmosphere composition. All of the five races that play football have similar atmospheric requirements. While this is a primary reason for the endless galactic war, as these five races seek to expand their territories, it is also the very glue that holds the GFL together. Many hypothesize that oxygen-breathing biochemistry is evolution's best choice for fast-moving, aggressive animal life. Sklorno, Key, Quith, Human, and Heavy G. Are all oxygen-breathing animals? There are, however, variations in the optimal atmosphere for each race. The exception being human and heavy G, who both prefer standard Earth atmosphere. In the interest of both fairness and consistency, the air composition breakdown is as follows: 75 to 78 percent nitrogen, 18 to 21 percent oxygen, 1 to 3 percent other. What about future expansion and new races? The strict parameters ensure that any team admitted to the GFL can play a fair competition against any other team of the Galactic Football League, but the standards will also impact the potential addition of future races to the league. If additional sentient races are allowed to play, they will have to operate in the environment listed above. At this time, the GFL does not permit pressure suits, air tanks, air modifiers. Or any other device that modifies the environment for a specific race or player, all players must compete without assistance of any kind. The only exceptions being the armor that protects against kinetic energy of other players and skin contact suits that regulate body temperature. Game tied ten to ten. Halfway through the third quarter, third down and 18 on the Warlords' 45. The lights of Ionath Stadium blaze down on the blue field, illuminating the black jerseys, armor, and helmets of the Krakens, as well as the pink and black gear of the Shora Warlords. The home crowd screamed before, during, and after each play, just as loud between plays, hungry for that elusive first Tier One victory. So much rode on this game. A loss would put the Krakens at 0 and 3. The Warlords were also facing the reality that they too were in a fight against relegation. A loss would put them at 1 and 2, near the bottom of the Solar Division. There weren't many wins in their future, and they needed this cross-divisional game against one of the weakest teams they would face this season, the Krakens. As such, both teams were down for all-out war. Quentin had nanosite tape wrapped around his neck, which did little to stem the flow of blood running down the inside of his armor. The warlord's all-pro safety cans had caught him on a blitz. She tackled him with her tentacles, her big body, and an illegal rasper wrap around his neck that the refs had conveniently missed. Her raspers had ripped off an inch-thick strip of skin all the way around, and a little muscle to go along with it. 
Doc Bata had said Quentin had come close to having his jugular ripped open, or some such garbage like that. Well, the jugular hadn't ripped open. Quentin could still draw breath, and that meant he could still play. Quentin walked up to the line. Just like the last play and all the plays before it, he felt a brief sense of relief when his gaze passed over Akhenatak. Even though the right guard was rusty and out of shape, he was a drastic improvement over Shunan Wan. Not just an improvement in protection, but an improvement in morale. The other linemen were playing harder now that their squad mate was back from injury. The lack of a warlord's pass rush and Akana's return was giving Quentin time to throw, and that was critical. Once again, Yasud Murphy's running game was anemic at best. Sud had carried the ball 15 times for just 22 yards. Quentin looked over the defense. Shora had come into the stadium looking all clean and new. Dark pink polka dots on bright pink jerseys, black letters spelling out warlords above the block black numbers. Their right shoulder featured the team's logo, a stylized hurrah done in, of course, pink and black. The same logo decorated either side of their hot pink helmets. Their uniforms didn't look clean and new anymore. Just like the Krakens, the Warlords' jerseys were ripped and torn, streaked with blue from the Iomat plants, stained with three shades of blood. Pink polka dot arm and leg armor looked chipped, scratched, and dented. Pink was a strange color for football, but that pattern apparently represented the Shora tribe. Pink, it seemed, was the color of hurrah blood, something Quentin had not yet seen. He bent behind center, eyes locking on each player, automatically hunting for cans. He saw her, cheating up to the line, threatening blitz again. Then he saw what she was doing. All four armored eye stalks aimed right at him. She pointed her two raspers at him, ringing them together clockwise, then counterclockwise, like a twisting rope made of tooth-studded snakes. Quentin stood straight and stared at her. Can's message was clear. Quentin's blood tasted good, and she wanted more. Whatever behavioral controls he'd developed, all his newfound culture, it all vanished, blown apart by an instant rage that curled his upper lip and furrowed his brow. He pointed right at her and screamed, Is that right? You want a second helping? He vaguely noticed the play clock counting down, his teammates looking back at him, confused. He reached to his neck and ripped off the nanosite patch. He tossed it behind him, then rubbed his hands on his bleeding neck. He slid his palms and fingers over his helmet, feeling the blood spread across the chipped, scratched surface. He finished by pointing a bloody finger at Cans, then pointing at his helmet, a message of his own, one that said, You want it? Well, come and take it. He wiped his palms against his jersey, then settled in beneath center. Green, 1018, he called out, audibling to a quarterback naked boot right. The Krakens knew their assignments and turned to face their foes. Green, 1018! Cans was too smart to get drawn in by a naked boot. She'd see it coming, and that was exactly the plan. Just before the snap, he stared at her again, his nostrils flaring, the rage in his chest bubbling up all wicked and lovely. She wanted to play in his world? Well, if you want blood, you got it. Hot, hot! The ball smacked into his hands. He opened to the left, putting the ball on Yasud's belly and riding him to the line. 
Quentin pulled the ball free and spun on his right heel, away from the line, coming all the way around before he started sprinting to the right. A pink-clad key lineman reached for him, but only for a moment, before the black-jerseyed Akanatak upended the defender and crushed him to the ground. Quentin tucked the ball into his right arm and ran, felt the air rush across his sweat-slicked face, felt it burning the torn skin on his neck, each step a surging rush of glory and life and immortality. Huntertown, the warlord's left cornerback, saw the run and instantly crashed toward Quentin. Quentin adjusted his pace. Huntertown wasn't paying attention to the outside edge of the field, to Halawa, who was in at right wide receiver. One thing that most Scalorno receivers were not good at was blocking. Too many collisions took its toll, affecting Scalorno's ability to catch the ball, if not injuring her outright. So while they would block, they usually just got in a defender's way, forcing that defender to change direction. Scalorno receivers normally didn't hit with everything they had. Halawa, apparently, was not most receivers. In a fraction of a second, Quentin's chess master mind calculated direction and velocity. He ran straight down the line, not changing his path, letting Huntertown come in fast. Just before she reached him, Halawa reached her. The oversized Sklorno receiver blindsided the cornerback, knocking her pink-spotted helmet clean off and sending her flying like a ragdoll. The world downshifted to a speed where he was king where he saw everything, heard everything, felt everything, smelled everything, and tasted everything. Halawa's hit not only left Quentin free to turn up the sidelines, it energized him. It was a burst of pure kinship, soul-binding with another species that played the game the way he played the game. He ran down the sidelines. With Huntertown out of the way, Cairns was the only warlord player in position to catch him. If you want blood. On the snap, Cans had dropped back into pass coverage and now streaked in with a blazing speed that only the Sklorno possessed. Get out of bounds! Coach Hokor shouted in his headset. Slide! No, not this time. He tucked the ball tightly into his right arm. The pink and black and white blur of Cans shot in. Quentin reared his head back like a mountain ram, then screamed a primal scream as he brought it forward with all his strength, timing it to smash his enemy at the moment of impact. The hit rattled him. Still in his slow-motion mode, he felt the wiggle of his liver, the vibration of his stomach, the quiver of his kidneys. He heard something snap near his left shoulder, suffered a sword stab of pain driving down into his lung. He lost all sense of reality, of time and space and distance. But his feet kept moving, little hard-working creatures that had brains of their own. Quentin looked up into the stands as he ran. His watery eyes saw a blurry wash of orange and black, banners, flags, sentience, all melding together into one giant black monster with orange eyes that demanded sacrifice blood sacrifice, and the monster must, must, must be appeased, for the monster is High One himself. He looked forward, saw the long, flat, black mouth of the monster, the High One, opening wide to accept him, to take him home. Quentin felt love and warlust rage through his chest, bouncing off his wounds both internal and external, 
making the pain a distant thing, a thing to be felt by the weak and the damned. He also sensed demons coming for him, things that would stop him from diving into the monster's welcoming maw. Not today, demons. His smart feet moved faster, faster, pushing him across the blue aisle as if he were in a grav car. He felt the heat of the demons, so close now. His feet launched him forward, so that he was floating, he was flying, flying headlong into the monster's maw, into freedom. The sound of a whistle called him back, and brought with it searing agony. Oh, oh! He couldn't move his left arm, his throwing arm. He tried to get up, but could not. His right arm still worked. He let go of the ball and blindly grabbed at a handful of Iomat. He lifted his hand to his face and looked at the plants. They were painted black. The black of the end zone. He had scored a touchdown. Faces swarmed over him. The faces of his teammates, worried and excited and reverent. He reached his right hand to his left shoulder, gently feeling for a second or two, before realizing his shoulder pad wasn't there. The hit had cracked his indestructible armor, ripped it free. It felt like someone had driven a screwdriver down his neck and into his lung. Quentin knew he was out for the game. Bring it home, boys and girls, he said, realizing that even talking hurt and not really caring about the pain. Bring it home! Protect our house! Med sled wires wrapped him and lifted him. Now he truly was floating. He didn't move a single iota when the sled carried him to the tunnel and back to the locker room. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. remote island in frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Broken collarbones hurt. A brace under Quentin's chin isolated his head, 
and kept it above the rejuvenation tank's pink gel. Even through high anxiety concerns about his ability to heal, to play next week, he couldn't help but be fascinated by the process. It was his first visit to the stadium's white-walled hospital. He'd seen the training room, sure. That room was just off the communal locker room. It had training tables, limb-sized rejuve tanks, surgical facilities for grafts and casts, the usual stuff. That was where he'd done his physical therapy and healing sessions after Yala the Biter had torn his hand. The training room worked for small things like that. His new injury, apparently, required something bigger. The hospital looked large enough to handle three or four critical patients at once. His tank alone was larger than his quarters on the touchback, larger than all three rooms combined. Other than his head, his entire body was submerged. Doc Patel was actually inside the tank, gently undulating wings carrying him through the fluid. Quentin couldn't see below the neck brace. Holo tank monitors on the wall let him watch Doc Patel's seemingly slow-motion flaps. Quentin, Doc Patel said, are you sure you want to watch this? Quentin started to nod before he remembered, for the hundredth time, that he couldn't move his head at all. I'm sure. I know your voice is coming through the speakers and the walls and all, but how the heck can you talk to me from inside there anyways? I mean, you're swimming in pink pudding. Raw vocal inflections are made inside our chest cavity. The microphone inside transmits to my speaker film. I just routed the signal to the room's sound system. I'm going to touch a nerve cluster to make sure the pain blockers are working. Tell me if you feel anything. On a count of three. Ready? Three, two, and one. Quentin watched the monitors. Doc Pata had opened up the skin from his shoulder to his neck. Through a pink haze, Quentin could see the jutting end of the broken bone. Pata's right mouth flap held a small metal probe. He poked it around the bone, trying different spots. Do you feel anything? Nothing, Quentin said. It's kind of weird, actually. The nerve blockers are working. Excellent. This break isn't that bad. It will only take about an hour. Glue the bone, graft on brace strips that will dissolve on their own the next few days, fuse you back up, and then the cast. How long am I out? Three days, Patas said. You're young. So I can play next week? I wouldn't recommend it. But I can play. Patas said nothing as he used clamps to pull the bone ends closer. Yes. You can play. Even though Quentin couldn't feel his body, he sensed the stress draining out of it. He had to play next week. The Krakens were traveling to the key system to play the undefeated Toe Pirates. The shucking Pirates, his childhood team. He'd risked public floggings to get pirated broadcasts of their games. Legendary quarterback Frank Zimmer. Quentin would be playing against Zimmer on the same field as Zimmer. Quentin couldn't stop a smile. At least his face muscles still worked. He had delivered on his promise to win at least one of the first three games, and without trading Scarborough or Denver. Akhenatak was back, finally providing decent pass blocking that would get better in a real hurry. Quentin had held out for his friends, and it had paid off. He looked to the holotank again, watching Doc use some kind of small machine to fuse the broken bone together. Back in the purest nation, a broken collarbone would have put him out for weeks. Here on the touchback in Tier 1, three or four days. Amazing. Hey, Doc, is this the worst injury you've ever fixed? Don't flatter yourself, Doc Patas said. 
I used to be a ring doctor in the Intergalactic Fighting Association. I've repaired worse than this between rounds of a fight. Worse than this? Quentin said, remembering the screaming fire that seemed to pour down his shoulder and into his lungs after the adrenaline had worn off. You've repaired worse than this between rounds of a fight? Guys couldn't go out and fight if they had broken bones, could they? I have seen sentients use their own broken bones as weapons, Quentin. I respect the toughness of you footballers, but there are athletes that make you look about as tough as a flyling. Quentin started to shake his head, but couldn't. A hundred and one. He remembered the title fight between Kyle North and Korak the Cutter. Kyle had used a broken leg bone to stab Korak in the side. Such toughness. Amazing. Wow, Doc, the IFA, huh? Hey, you ever work for anyone I've heard of? On the screen, he saw Doc Patas stop moving. The winged hurra just floated there, perfectly still in the pink fluid. No, the hurra said finally. If you don't mind, Quentin, I'd like to stop talking with you and focus on your surgery. Shall I turn on the game highlights for you? Sure, Quentin said. That'd be great. Hey, can I watch from when I went out? The holotank's monitor image changed from his own surgery to a replay of the game broadcast. He saw himself being carted off the field. The announcers were talking about Quentin's touchdown run and how it changed the game's momentum. Ah, oh, sweet! Chick McGee and Massara are commentating. I love those guys. Quentin, please. I did ask for silence. Quentin relaxed and watched the rest of the game. The Kraken's defense stopped the warlords and forced them to punt. Relaxation turned to anxiety as Don Pine came in at quarterback. Quentin watched silently as Pine threw a third-quarter touchdown to Scarborough, then added an 85-yard fourth-quarter strike to Denver. The old man could still play. Doc Bata said three days. Three days where Don Pine would be getting all the first-string snaps in practice. Quentin promised himself he would be back on the field in two. Stay behind me, Quentin, said Chodo the Bright. The club will be crowded. Someone might bump your arm. Greedock had allowed the Kraken's players back into the city, but still insisted his quarterback have a bodyguard wherever he went, even to one of the safest places in the city, Greedock's own club, the Bootleg Arms. Quentin carefully adjusted the strap on his arm sling. One more day with this thing on, then he could start working out. Quentin followed Chodo into the club. They were no more than a step inside the door when a familiar quith worker's voice rang out. Elder Barnes, Chodo the Bright, said Teakhead the Groveling. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Can we get you dinner, drinks, controlled substances, human women, females of other species? Quentin shook his head. Not today, TCAD. The team leaves for Key Imperial Space tonight. It's no time to drink. I came to talk to you, Sued Murphy. Where is he? TCAD's eye turned a little green. Oh, uh, Mr. Murphy isn't here, Elder Barnes. He, Quentin's hand, shot out to grab TCAD, but no sooner had it reached the worker than Quentin stopped himself. No, he wasn't on McCovey anymore. He didn't have to let his temper drive everything to a solution of violence. TCAD flinched when Quentin reached, but Quentin just patted him on his petty palp shoulder. I know he's here. Just save us both the breath of arguing about it and take me to him, okay? T 
Teacad seemed to think about it for a moment. Then the green faded from his eye. Of course, Elder Barnes. Right this way. Quentin, Chodo said. Should I join you for this conversation? Quentin thought about it for a moment, then shook his head. Nah, I'll talk to him alone. I don't want him to think the team is ganging up on him. The team needs to gang up on him, Chodo said. Perhaps even apply physical encouragement. If your conversation fails, Virak and I may take it upon ourselves to help you soon understand the importance of running the ball hard. The thought of Chodo and Virak teaming up for a beatdown made Quentin's stomach clench a little. Two veteran gangland toughs probably knew how to cause a lot of pain. I'll handle it, Quentin said. Just hang out, okay? Chodo walked to the bar. Quentin followed TCAD through the nightclub, careful to avoid any of the wildly dancing patrons. All he needed now was an accidental bump that might cause him a few more days of recuperation. The fact that he was here at all infuriated him, but this conversation had to happen, and it had to happen now. Flashbugs popped in time to the music, filling the dark club with a spastic, colorful light. TCAD gestured to a booth that was obscured by a curtain. Quentin nodded. TCAD scurried away. Quentin drew the curtain. Yasud was in there all right, slumped over, elbows on the table, both hands clutched around a mag can of Miller. It was apparently the last of six. The other five were stacked in a little unfinished pyramid, a row of three with a row of two on top. Hey, Quentin said. Mind if I join you? I am not here, Yasud said. I know this, because I said to Tikad, I said, Tikad, I am not here. Quentin slid into the other side of the booth. Don't blame him, Sud. I was going to talk to you one way or another. Tikad chose the easy way. Quentin nodded toward the beer pyramid. You, uh, know we fly out of here tonight and have practice tomorrow, yeah? Yasud sank back in the seat, shoulders slumped, chin in his chest, the beer still clutched in his hands. Oh, thank you for the heads up, hero. You want a brew? No, I need my head clear because I'll be studying up on the pirates tonight. Of course you will. I don't know why you're bothering. The pirates are going to kill us. Quentin chewed on his lower lip, wondering what to say. You could study with me. We'll work out in the morning, VR against their defensive sets. At 5 a.m.? No thanks. We can't all be machines, you know. Quentin felt a slight pang in his chest at the word machine, the nickname for their former all-star running back, Mitchell Fayette. Yasud sounded so dismissive, so defeated. Quentin could handle a lot of things in his teammates, but what he could not handle was weakness. Yasud, maybe you should try being a machine. You are the starting running back for the Ionath Krakens, so you should work as hard as the starting quarterback. I am working my butt off, man. Yasud said, sitting forward so fast the magcan pyramid rattled. But come on, no one can live up to your standards. Shuck that, Murphy. Our running game is garbage. Hey, don't blame me because Greedock won't get an offensive line. I'm enough, Quentin hissed. He realized his right index finger was pointed at Yasud's face, the tip of the finger just an inch from the tip of Yasud's nose. You don't blame your teammates. You got me? Get that finger out of my face or we're going to go. A challenge. A direct challenge. Quentin sat back, controlled his automatic reaction. Even with one arm in a sling, 
Literally, he could dust his suit. A month ago, maybe even a few weeks ago, he would have done exactly that. But not anymore. Time to be honest, Sood. You're not running hard enough, and it's hurting the team. Yasud sipped his beer and looked off into the distance. Maybe I'm running as hard as I can. You're not. Not even close. I am, Q. Quentin leaned forward again. This is your shot, man. You are a starting running back in Tier 1. It's what every running back dreams of, and it's yours to lose. Why aren't you bleeding yourself dry to soak up every last minute of this opportunity? Yasud shrugged. Maybe I just don't have it, Q. Maybe, maybe I'm not good enough. Defeat radiated off of Yasud, an emotion so thick and pungent it made Quentin sick to even look at him. You are good enough, Quentin said, knowing it might not be true even as he spoke the words. This is your chance. If you don't start playing like your life depends on it, playing like I play, then you're going to regret it for the rest of your days. For the rest of my days? There's more to life than football, you know. If that's what you think, then you don't belong. Yasud leaned forward again. Right. Is that the wisdom of a 19-year-old? Quentin suddenly thought back to the one-armed boy on McCovey, the last person he'd talked to before driving to the spaceport for his flight to the Combine. The scrawny, malnourished boy with one arm, who clearly loved football more than anything. That kid would never even play the game let alone have the kind of physical gifts that came naturally to Yasud Murphy. Quentin pushed the curtain aside, slid out of the booth, and stood. No, it's not the wisdom of a 19-year-old. It's the wisdom of a future Hall of Fame quarterback, a future MVP, a future Galaxy Bowl winner. It's the wisdom of a man that won't ever stop pushing himself until he's dead, crippled, or he's rewritten every record ever kept for his position. And if you don't have that same attitude, if you're going to waste the talent that High One gave you by not working hard enough to develop it, then you deserve to be nothing more than the drunk that you are. Yasu drained his beer, then completed the pyramid. I really appreciate the pep talk, Q. I'm glad that when the chips are down, you come here and show what kind of friend you really are. Quentin reached across the table and knocked over the beer can pyramid. I'm here because I'm your friend, you jackass. Friendship doesn't win football games. I will help you, but you have to help yourself first. And if you don't, I'll find someone to replace you. Don't be late for the shuttle. Quentin turned and left his friend sitting in the booth. Chodo saw Quentin coming, shoved a spindly, nasty bit of deep-fried food into his mouth, then scooted ahead as they left the bootleg arms. GFL Week 3 Roundup, courtesy of Galaxy Sports Network. Three weeks in, and only five teams remain undefeated. The Toe Pirates crushed the Hitoni Hullwalkers 46-10 to move to 3-0. The Dakau War Dogs kept their 3-0 record pristine by trouncing the Sala Intrigue 1-2, and the new Rodina Astronauts, also 3-0, won a nail-biter against the 1-2 Jupiter Jacks. The Isis Ice Storm and the Lou Juggernauts, who both had a bye week, are also undefeated at 2-0. Over in the Quith Concordia, the Ionath Krakens 1-2 made a statement that they will not go quietly into relegation with their 24-10 cross-divisional win over the Shoro Warlords 1-2. 
Kraken's quarterback, Quentin Barnes, made every highlight reel in the galaxy with a spectacular, armor-shredding 45-yard touchdown run that put both he and Warlord's defensive back cans out of the game. The Alamo Armada, 1-2, got into the win column with a 13-10 overtime thriller over the Bartell Waterbugs, who are also 1-2. Coronado Delano, 1-2, also ended their winless ways with a come-from-behind 31-28 upset over the board brigands, who are now 2-1. Wrapping up the week, the Neptune Scarlet Flyers, 1-2, got their first win of the season by topping the Jang Adam Smashers, 1-2, by a score of 17-6. The Mars Planets, who are 2-1, topped the Femla Dreadnoughts, who are 1-2, by a score of 24-15. And the Yaw Criminals, who are 1-2, edged out the Wabash Wolfpack, who are now 2-1, by a score of 24-13. Yes! Kusera, second-year receiver for the Sala Intrigue, died on a hit from Pesach the Grinding. GFL officials ruled it a clean hit. And Huntertown, cornerback for the Shore Warlords, died of complications resulting from a vicious crackback block by Ionath Kraken's rookie receiver, Halawa. The Warlords have lodged a formal complaint that the hit was actually a clip and therefore illegal. Should GFL Commissioner Rob Prost rule the hit illegal, the Krakens will have to pay a death bounty to the Warlords. Offensive Player of the Week! Toe Pirates quarterback Frank Zimmer, who was a perfect 18 for 18 and threw three touchdowns. Defensive Player of the Week. Ionath Kraken's middle linebacker John Tweedy, who had six solo tackles, an interception, and caused a fumble. You have been listening to The Starter. Season 3 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon. Superweaponband.com Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.